0: So this summer, we've been walking through Abraham's life. And if you're visiting with us and you're not normally used to studying the Bible, this character, Abraham, is fascinating. I mean, half of the world claims some sort of tie to this particular person. So at the very least, you know, the concerns of about 3.5 billion people uh, ought to be our concerns as well. And so that's what we do today. We continue studying... The life of Abraham and his story is found in Genesis chapters 12 to 23. But this morning we're in Genesis chapter 14. So go ahead and turn there. And by studying Abram's life, he's also known by he's first known by the name of Abram. And then eventually God's going to change his name to Abraham. So I'm just going to go ahead and call him Abram because that's what scripture calls him. At least the portion of scripture that we're in today. So by studying Abram's life, we get to see firsthand what living a life of faith is like. And it's important to note that that the Christian faith is not always easy. So some seasons, without doubt, they're going to bring seasons of difficulty and struggle. The great thing, the marvelous thing, is that in the midst of these times, though our faith would be frail, though we might walk by sight and not by faith, God is always God, and he is always faithful. He always delivers. We see this in Abraham's life, or Abram's life, which includes the events of today in Genesis 14. And the story of Abraham, if you go back to Genesis 12, actually go ahead and turn there. We'll just start from the beginning of of, uh, the story of Abram. There we see that though Abram has a pagan upbringing, so he worships false gods, even though he lives in a pagan land, Yet God still chooses to use this one individual. Out of all everyone here on the earth, God brings his word of promise, his word of hope, his promises to this man. And in so doing, he recreates his people. And he's going to take Abram and the, all the people that are going to come from him and make all those people, people of faith, into a people who would worship God and walk in his way. And this is the promise that God gives him. Look in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. So basically he's going to leave. And from your kindred and from your father's house to the land, I will show you. So there he has to sacrifice everything to follow God. That's a picture of lordship there. He's calling him to leave, to get out of town. And God then will do what he wants with him. And I will make of you a great nation or kingdom is more accurate. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham's story here, Abraham's story is a story about what it looks like to try and live in the reality of the promises of God's word. He's trying to live in the reality of the promises of God. So this guy has to have faith and God's going to give him the faith. And we saw last week, though, just as there are ups and downs last week, we saw that there are downs in his faith. Abram lived in fear for a time and he leaves the promised land because of a famine. He doesn't trust God. And then we also saw his his nephew, Lot, who lived by sight and not by faith and who basically he chooses to leave or inch away from the promised land. And instead, he moves in the direction of Sodom. As those of you who are familiar, when you hear the words Sodom and Gomorrah, you should think danger. It's a really evil place. And so much so that, that, that Moses, who was writing these books, says that they, the Sodomites were, were great sinners against God. But even though Abram and even though Lot might live by sight for a time, God in his grace still comes to them and delivers. In Genesis 14, which is where we come to today, Uh, we see the first story of israel becoming israel so we see abram here interacting with the other nations around them he sort of gains a reputation and this is the first of many battle accounts where the surrounding nations are sort of in some senses very much against god's people and in the midst of the first battle we see abram's faith kind of come to the fore last week it was not good but by god's grace he winds up back in the promised land but here he exercises faith by god's grace And we see that the strength of Abram's faith and more significantly from, from the passage today, we see here the faithfulness of God just doing what he does. He blesses people. So Genesis 14, let's go ahead and look there. And I got to warn you if, uh, you know, if you're not used to reading battle accounts, this certainly reads like one. So this is an introduction here to the, it reads like the annals of this great King who's going to go and conquer. So there's lots of names, lots of places. So you really got to bear with me here as we read through these names as we read through these, just keep in mind here, listen for the action words here, because that's what drives the story along, okay? Verse one. And we're just going to walk through the passage today. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, Keduleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, shameber king of zeboim and the king of bela that is zor and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the salt sea or near the dead sea so what you have here if you're looking at a map of let's say the ancient near east you see that these are mesopotamian kings most likely and they're making war with kings who live around the promised land so they come down and we see them doing just that. So you got kings from Mesopotamia waging war against these western kings who were around where Abraham and Lot, Abram and Lot are. Now, what's the reason for war? We find out here in the next verse. Look at verse 4. Twelve years they had served Ketileomer, but in the thirteenth year they had rebelled. So what would typically happen is, uh, well, actually, we know for a fact that the Jordan Valley and the Dead Sea, that area was sort of rich in minerals. So most likely these larger sort of kingdoms or these kings would come down and draw from these resources. And in so doing, they would put these sort of smaller cities, they would become like their vassals. So then they would pay tribute back to the larger, larger king. And when you read here, let's say something like the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, you shouldn't think like, wow, you know, this is like the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, you know, massive lands and massive people. He, these are actually from what scholars say, smaller groups of peoples. So you would have the larger groups of people sort of enslaving to some degree or making these smaller cities their vassals, their servants, and they would pay tribute. So it it seems very much like um, these folks down near the promised land, near the Dead Sea, they're paying tribute to this man named And But in the 13th year, they rebel. Look there in verse five. In the 14th year... Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth-Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakirithim, kirithim and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as the El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came into Mish and Mishpat and defeated all the country of the Amalekites. And also the Amorites who are dwelling in Hazazon Tamar, right? Lots of names, lots of people. It's kind of confusing. What's interesting here is that none of these names have anything to do with the people that we focus on today. But they serve to move the story forward, right? It reads like a conquering king's annals, his, his histories, his battles, his conquer his conquerings as he defeats all of these different kinds of people. And, and you can imagine in terms of a map that they're, mapped, that they're moving from the north to the south. So you follow their defeats as Ketileomer Kedil- sort of has victory over the north and then he moves down slowly on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the Jordan Valley. He goes down to where the Salt Sea is and then he doesn't stop there, uh, those rebels. He doesn't stop. He goes around this way and defeats all these people and then he returns to the Valley of Sittim, the Dead Sea that area right there so uh, this story moves forward the greatness of king the great one tribe after another he defeats them so you see he defeated and then a bunch of names he defeated and then a bunch of names this guy is a guy to be reckoned with you know a guy that we might say man you know they're they're a powerful force and we ought to be paying attention to them Kind of like some what's going on right now in various portions of the world. There are rulers who need to be dealt with, who need to be on the radar of the other kingdoms around them, kingdoms around the world. So they go from north to south, just destroying, defeating. This guy's powerful. Um, then look at verse eight. Here the rebels respond. Verse eight. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. That is, they marched out. You got five kings here. They went out and they joined battle in the Valley of Sidim with Keduleomer, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar. Four Mesopotamian kings versus the five Western kings. Four against five. And you would figure that the five are going to win, right? Because there's they have more. But no, the emphasis here is the greatness of Keduleomer, Right? He marches down and he conquers. He even has less than these five. And still, eventually, we see that they are defeated. So again, they're in the valley of Sidim, or near the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. It was called that because um, the Salt Sea had so much salt in it that nothing could live. Thus, it's called the Dead Sea. So from my own research, uh, ocean bodies, saltwater bodies, they have about 3% salt. This body here had 30% plus salt. And i got friends who've swam in the Dead Sea, and they say that uh, it's so thick that people float automatically. You just float along the surface. So I would have problems because I don't float um, But in normal water. But there in that, in that uh, Dead Sea where nothing lives, I would be floating. And probably dead and floating after a little while. <laughs> um, okay, now look at verse 10. Now we're breezing through this battle account here. Now the Valley of Sidium was full of bitumen pits. Or you can think of it as like tar pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. So it doesn't even talk about how Ketaleomer's maybe massive army is going to defeat them. Or they, they strike so much fear in these five kings that they flee. But nevertheless, they flee. Some fell into the tar pits to eventually become fossil fuels. And the rest fled to the hill country. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. It's interesting, okay? Again, there's no mention of any of our characters. There's no mention of Abram. There's no mention of Sarai, his wife. There's no mention of Lot. So we're not really drawn into the story until you come to verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother. So you, you feel the story moving on here. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went. On their way. So again, Lot, you know, though he is called a righteous man in scripture, he doesn't make some bad life decisions, and he lives by sight, not by faith for a time. He inches towards this ungodly city and he stays away from Abram. But we are drawn in here. The Mesopotamian kings, they come and they haul off Lot his possessions. And this is a cinematic scene. I mean, you guys can imagine this, right? A cinematic scene where lords and kings come down to, the, to this area, wreaking havoc, making war. That's an action word there. They make war, claiming by the sword what they thought was owed to them. And then you have these other kings who are marching out to battle to join them. Four against five. You know, east meets west. And you can imagine, you know, surely they took some, surely they took some casualties right before they actually got down to Sodom and Gomorrah and waged war against those kings. But nevertheless, they're still going to wage war there and they win. So the five kings, they can't stop them. Nobody can stop them here. The, the greatness of Ketoleomer is, is a boast right here. They're conquerors. They get what they want. They take what they want. And it's amazing how it really does seem to be about this Ketoleomer fella. You know, even after he takes all their stuff, it says that they just go on their way. They're hauling off these people. They go on their way. They get what they want. So let's just list off all the names of the people that they defeated. Just, so, just, to, just imagine all the people here who were part of these tribes. The Rephaim. The Zuzim. The Emites. The Horites. The Amalekites. The Amorites. And then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma. And chances are they're bringing all these people with them. The king of Zeboim and the king of Bela. So who else is there left to conquer? enter in the hebrews not just the hebrews like a number of but one of them abram the hebrew so we see here eventually the counter of abram verse 13 then one who had escaped came and told abram the hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the amorite brother of eschol and aner these were allies of abram interesting this is the first time that the word hebrew is used And it refers to, most likely, Abram's ethnicity. There are other possibilities, but most likely here it refers to Abram's ethnicity. So, Ketelatomer is conquering all these other ethnicities, all these other tribes. But, in God's scripture, he wants us to know that they have one to reckon with. Abram the Hebrew. Look at what Abram hears, what he does when he hears about how the fact that they took Lot. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive... So it's like, OK, forget about all the stuff. Forget about the possessions. Forget about all the people. When he hears about his kinsmen, he led forth trained men, bored of his house, 318 of them. Here the emphasis is really on his kinsmen. So that's what rouses him to action. It's not that, the, you know, that these kings took the possessions and the people, the spoils of war. No, it's that they took his kinsmen and that's what brings him to his feet so the fact that lot is his kinsman is actually a big deal see how it drives us forward and then at the end this word kinsman comes up again and in fact it came up last week as we saw because lot was abram's kinsman he said you lot go ahead and choose whatever you want and then that's where lot makes the bad decision so he sets off to redeem his kinsman to go and rescue him even though he's the one who's made a bad decision So it's not like he says, ah, you know, let's just forget about him. He's inching towards Sodom. Anyways, he says they've captured him. Now I'm going to go and get him. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house. 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. That is just awesome. Let me read that again. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram is a stud. So if you guys know military men who have waged war you know they come back and they got their battle scars and lord willing they would be fighting for a good cause and they are studs so i got a friend who's now a church planter he's planting in north carolina um good brother solid brother loves the gospel preaches it faithfully he's was a former uh army ranger you know jumps out of airplanes um knows about warfare he broke his back jumping out of an airplane uh, and the guy is a stud. I mean, he's going to risk his life to do some really cool things. And that's what Abram does. In this chapter, you want to own him. You want to say, that's my forefather, right? But it's funny, just this last chapter, last week, we're like, ooh, yeah, I don't want I don't really want to, I don't really want to associate with that Abram who leaves the promised land to seek refuge underneath the pagan king of, of Pharaoh in Egypt. But then here we're like, dude, this guy's, I'm with him. Here he lives by faith and not by sight, as we're going to see. So what he does is he leads a whole battalion, 318 men, loyal men, and they go on this rescue mission to dig Lot out of his own grave. And we learn a lot about him from this. So he had at least 318 loyal men to carry out this mission. I mean, that's significant. He's a a wealthy guy by God's grace, as uh, even Pharaoh was giving him stuff as Pharaoh kicked him out of the land um abram as well i mean he's the one to train them in the warfare right presumably not only that but he is the one who strategizes most likely who plans this night mission under the cover of darkness and they go from horeb past damascus eventually so the two first you see the word dan so from horeb to dan is like over a hundred miles so you have this guy leading 318 318 men up north a hundred plus miles and then further beyond that, north of Damascus, so I could add on another 50 miles, basically 120 and then 50. I mean, this guy really is a stud. He's faithful, faithful to his kinsmen. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Right, he's bringing back everything. I mean, everything that the great Keterleomer had taken, the possessions, the spoils of war, the people, the women, the children, he brings them all back. and Abram is just Abram. I mean, at that point in time, God has promised him the land, but he doesn't have the land. He's promised him a people, but you know compared to uh, most likely Kenommer's army, you know he only has 318. He goes there, he gets lot his king's kinsmen out of trouble. I want a kinsman like that right do you guys want a kinsman like that you I, I think we would all love to have that kind of man or that kind of friend fighting for you if you were in trouble i would love to be i would love to be brothers with that guy who would count me a kinsman of his right some guy who's going to rally the troops and lead men out to come and get me to leave no man behind certainly physically that would be great you know a brother who was going to fight for me physically he's going to be there if i'm in need But how awesome is it, too, that that here we have the opportunity to fight for one another spiritually as we are kinsmen. We are brothers in Jesus Christ. And that's a bond that binds us closer together than any possible earthly thing could. So you might have the same blood running through your veins with a person, you know, you know, that you're going to go have dinner with tonight, whom you might call father or brother or sister. But that doesn't make you closer than two Christians, which is incredible. I mean, the unity that we have, we, save, we serve the same God, we have the same Lord, we have the same baptism, we have even the very same Spirit. I mean, we are bound fundamentally as brothers and sisters who serve the same God. Again, Lot here, though he makes a bad decision at times, he is known as a righteous man, and Abram and Lot, though they both make, make mistakes, they're bound together as brothers who follow Yahweh, God who is. So here in this church, I pray that we would be brothers and sisters who are able to come to each other's aid. Physically, yes, to meet our daily needs if we're in trouble. We're strapped for cash. We need some practical help. But spiritually, especially. Brothers and sisters who would come to our aid. And by God's grace, you know, in doing the membership interviews, when people come to join the church, I get to hear stories about how people's lives and mentalities have been changed because of this particular church. And I think overall, we should be encouraged. So one example, you know, now, of course, we don't do this perfectly. We, no church loves perfectly. So there, be, there will be some here who might say, you know, this church is, I'm struggling to find my home here. But overall, I do think that we should be encouraged. So I have this one example of Anthony, who's not here today, but, you know, he had to fly back up north. And in, he never saw what a healthy church looked like, or at least a church moving towards greater health looked like but in coming here he's able to encounter brothers and sisters who follow after jesus and things are changing for him in terms of what god's people ought to look like here on earth so much so that he says man i really want to be down here and i want to look for a job around here and so he's applying to a job in uh you know in a nearby city about five seven miles away and when i told him when i encouraged him to look for a job i said look brother you might not have a car." But the church will come around you to help you even take care of practical things like finding a job ultimately so that you can be taken care of spiritually here in the church. And so that's exactly what happened. I said, dude, brother, you don't need to worry about that. Just look for jobs here. And when opportunities come up, we're going to try to to the best of our ability, gather around you and take care of practical things. So he makes this need known on Facebook. And then soon enough, you know, he has housing. He has someone picking up from the airport. He has someone driving around to various, uh, uh, various appointments. And that's you guys coming alongside him hopefully seeing him as your kinsman wanting to make sure that this one particular brother continues to grow in the faith so your guys some of your guys actions you guys might think these are small things but i'm pretty sure in his mind and in the minds of those who actually need help these things are huge things so let me encourage you guys to continue doing what you're doing And even where we struggle to to be successful in serving our kinsmen and serving our brothers, which is really what the word means, uh, you know, may we labor all the more um, vigorously. So we are kinsmen here in this church. But, you know, as much as we could camp out on this idea of friendship, which is what moves Abram to go and, you know, lead this mission under the night darkness, uh, it isn't the main point of the passage nor is abram's mission the main point of the passage you guys notice how uh, how many verses are given to abram's conquerings hardly any space here is given to let's say abram's training of the 318 hardly anything he just sort of passes he just passes it by hardly anything is given to his actual mission or how specifically they got back long like that's kind of what i want to know right because he's going up to the great kettle here who defeats the five kings and defeats all these other people Hardly anything is given to, nothing is mentioned about what Lot thought, how Lot felt, what the reunion was like, right? None of that's mentioned. It's interesting. You just see Ketoleomer, right, in all of his conquerings, and like two verses. He trains them, he rescues them, he brings them back. That's it. He just says there, he brought Lot back. Four words in English. And then he says, he brought them back. That is everything. everything else. And then he just moves on. So it's important to pay attention here to what scripture pays attention to. So what is of central concern ought to be our central concern this morning. It is not ultimately friendship. It is not ultimately how studly he is. The main point actually comes out in the dialogue that follows. So you have Kedalaomer the Great, a number of verses. It reads like annals of the great king, all of his conquests. You have Abram, he conquers. And then you have something else that goes on for a number of verses later. And that's sort of where the main point is. Look there in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketelam and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava. So maybe he climbed out of his tar pit and he didn't end up becoming a dinosaur. But he, somehow he gets out or maybe he's the one who fled to the hill country. He goes and he meets Abram in his victory. You also have another king you got and Melchizedek king of Salem he brought out bread and wine he was priest of god most high so here all of a sudden in this valley next to the dead sea you have more or less three different types of kings you have the king of Sodom evil city you have the king Melchizedek who is priest of the god most high and then you have Abram who is a budding king he's going to be a leader of this nation and then you have this dialogue between Abram, Sodom and Melchizedek that teaches us this lesson. And really you have these two kings who dialogue with Abram. And Abram has a choice. Am I going to follow Sodom's line, or am I going to follow Melchizedek's example here? So two kings come out, the king of Sodom, and then the king of Salem. Interestingly, um, Salem is another way of referring to Jerusalem. You could hear it Salem and then Jerusalem. Psalm Psalm 76.2, they basically are interchangeable there. Zion or Jerusalem and then Salem. It's another word for peace. So Melchizedek is a king of the city called peace. And then Melchizedek itself literally means king of righteousness. So when you see these two words, he's a king of righteousness over the city of peace. right That should be cluing us into this guy's a really unique guy. And we see again the central concerns. Melchizedek in 19... He brings out bread and wine, which is really just a summary of probably a whole feast. Verse 19, and he blessed him. So Abram has his victory and then then Melchizedek blesses him. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave Abram a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods yourself. Now, we're going to come and contrast those two different responses to Abram the Conqueror, who just conquered Kedalayim or the Great. But I need to say something here about this character, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. He is a king priest, a king priest. And he comes out and he gives this authoritative blessing on Abram. Now, that's significant. Not only that, but Abram then gives him a tenth, a tithe to him. And the lesser ties to the greater. Here you have spiritual authority. So this guy, Melchizedek, is greater than Abram, the father of the faith. Which should clue us in, again, to the significance of this character. The, uh, The interesting thing is that in Scripture, he's only mentioned two other times. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, in reference to this example, And then he's mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 7. But he's a really important character because Jesus, the king priest, comes from the order of Melchizedek. So you have, I know we're getting somewhat technical here. So you have the Melchizedek order, the priestly order. God later comes along and he establishes the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood. But they are underneath, they are not superior to Melchizedek. Melchizedek is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. And then on top of that, Jesus comes along, the king priest, the priest, the the king of righteousness who reigns over his city of Jerusalem, which is his Zion. Later on, Zion is sort of basically the world. Um, And Jesus comes after Melchizedek. So Melchizedek here, he points to Jesus Christ, who comes along in the New Testament. He is a priest of the Most High God who comes and he blesses. Not only that, but he points to God, the Most High, and he blesses God. Okay, so with that, let's now move to contrast here, these two different responses to the kings. We read the response to Abram by Sodom's king. He he went out. He, He sort of just went out with nothing in his hands, right? He simply goes out. And then you see Melchizedek, he, he comes out in a different way. He brings out stuff. So those are two different postures here. And then you can contrast the words of the two kings. So consider the, the king of Sodom's first words to Abram. He says, give me. Give me the people. You take the rest of the stuff. So his approach is his posture to Abram, the conqueror, is to negotiate already with this great one who has all of his stuff, all of his possessions under his care. Now, legally, the guy who conquers technically can get it all. So it's all of Abram's, yet Sodom's king comes out and says, look, you give me the people. Let's negotiate here. It's an interesting posture to take, given that he was a conquered one who maybe fell into the tarpon and has to come back all you know, slimy and whatnot. But Abram is the one who defeated Sodom's defeater. Abram is the one who rescued all of Sodom's people and has all of his possessions. The king of Sodom has no idea what he's dealing with here, really. But Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, he brings a blessing. He brings a feast. He does know who he's dealing with, which is exactly why he says what he says here. Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So Sodom's king, interestingly enough, he's concerned about getting he's the defeated one but melchizedek the priest of the most high god the king of righteousness who sits over peace he's concerned with giving giving praise to him who deserves it all so you have sodom who's concerned with getting you have melchizedek who's concerned with giving praise so it's fascinating here when we put this in light of in light of all of chapter 14 you have keteleomers boastings You know, the annals of the great king. Moses could be potentially looking at them, writing them down. The annals of the victors' uh, battles, uh, the results of them. Ketelamur is great. And then you have Abram who defeats. And then you have Melchizedek's blessing, which takes up a lot of room. He says, blessed are you. But it doesn't stop there. It's not full stop, period. He says, blessed are you because you're so great. He says, blessed be Abram. Because of God most high, he himself is blessed by the God most high possessor of heaven and earth. Now, you know, if you're going to look at all your stuff and create a survey, whether it's a box in your closet that you rent, you know, in your apartment that you rent or your whole entire house that you might own. And then all of a sudden you have this priest of the most high God who's saying, blessed be God, uh, blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of everything. You're going to begin to look and look at your stuff. How, no matter how big no matter how small a little differently right you're going to come to realize that this is god he is also the creator of heaven and earth that means the same thing there so he says blessed are you because of god and then he says blessed is god because he's handed your enemies into your very own hands now i could imagine that for abram here, this victory and this blessing would be burned and onto his mind forever. And I would hope that this episode of Abram's life would be emblazoned on the minds of Israel, his people, as well. And also on ours as people of faith. God, the Most High, is the Creator and Possessor. He is, in fact, the God who helps, the God who blesses. No matter how great the kings may be, who you have to face, God possesses everything he's sovereign over all things he is the creator and he is also the helper that's really what it means when it talks about uh the possessor of heaven and earth and then he brings a blessing so you have god the creator and god the helper he not only creates and possesses but he delivers so go ahead and turn to uh psalm 121 it's basically in the middle of your bible Psalm 121, it says, I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He's not like you who needs sleep. Nothing in the world is in your control when you sleep. God, though, who is the helper, the creator and possessor of heaven and earth, he will not sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forever. So you see that maker of heaven and earth. And what does he do? He blesses, he keeps, he protects. Now turn to Psalm 115. We see another example here. There are others, but I'm not going to read them all. Psalm 115 verses 9 to 15. Now pay attention here. This, uh, listen, listen to this imperative. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children, and may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth god is god he is the creator the possessor of everything and he is the your help he is your shield at least to those who call on his name so the only reason why abram here is successful against Chedorlaomer the great in this night mission is because god is a god who neither sleeps nor slumbers but he's a god who keeps the Lord is your keeper if you are a believer. And so he was going to keep Abram. And without, without doubt, he's going to keep his promises. Because that's really what the story is all about. Abram here, he's trying to live in the realities of the promises of God. And he believes. Later on in the New Testament, in Hebrews eleven nine 9 to 10, this is what it says. It's speaking about Abram. He says, by faith, he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with isaac and jacob heirs with him of the same promise for the reason why he lived in the promised land this is interesting the reason why he lived in the promised land was because he was looking forward to the city it wasn't in it wasn't there he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is god so with that faith look how he responds to the king of Solomon. the king of Solomon's is concerned about getting right as opposed to Melchizedek, who's concerned with giving praise to God. He says, give me the people, you take the stuff. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread nor a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, I will take nothing. But what the young men have eaten, I will take, and the share of the men who went with me. Later, Aner, Eshgal, and Mamre took their share. So you notice here that Abram has the opportunity. God has promised him nation, established people. He had the opportunity to take all those people. He had the opportunity to take all that stuff. He He had the opportunity to seize sort of the promises of God, or so he would think, and then therefore to establish what God had promised, to grasp after them and to seize them. But he doesn't do that. So what does he say? He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. What does he call him? He calls him the same thing that Melchizedek called him. Possessor of heaven and earth. So just as God has all of the stuff that I just got from Ketileomer, surely he has the promised land as well that he's promised to me already. I have lifted my hand to the creator and the one who helps and the one who keeps. And I will not take a thing. Not even the smallest thing, the lowest of things, a thread, a sandal strap, Because then you might be able to say, I am the one who made Abram rich. Abram basically says there in that moment, I'm going to concern myself with giving and giving praise to God. Who gives me everything and who sustains me and who keeps me. And so therefore, I don't need these things for God's promises to become true. Now, some people might think that here Abram saying, oh, I just want to be like a self-made man. By saying I'm not going to take anything. Lest you be able to say you made me risk. That's not what he's talking about here. Abram is living by faith. And we want to cheer him on here. As a man who lives by faith. Because he is a son. He trains the 318. He means this night mission. He brings everything back. But more importantly. We ought to be cheering him on. Because here in that moment. Though the previous chapter. He had gone down to live with a pagan king Egypt. He had lied about the status of him and his his wife sarai here he makes the choice to stand with the king of righteousness to give blessing to god and to say god gets the glory here not anyone else and he knows that god alone gets the glory god of the promise promises the one who has promised him land the one who will give him people and blessing the one who certainly would deliver and just as he delivered his enemies into his very own hand surely Abram's not going to get the glory and surely the king of Sodom's not going to get the glory, but God's going to get the glory. So in the words of Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. He could have concerned himself with grasping and seizing after the so-called blessings as he understood them of the promises, but he doesn't. He concerns himself in that moment with giving god praise giving god praise just like the king of righteousness does and he says he boasts god is going to make me satisfied god is the one who's going to give me riches i am going to inherit this because of god so the point is that abram trusted in his god to help him and as we are going to see in the future more than he even realizes so god has given us promises too you know as, as we seek to apply this to our lives god has given us promises too right He's promised us riches in Jesus. That's not physical riches, but riches in Jesus as He is our inheritance. So it says in Philippians 4 19, and God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise for us. Another promise, He promises us satisfaction and rest. So Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, it comes, Jesus invites us. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary. And burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. He promises us satisfaction. Now, we could look at those promises in the immediate and in a clouded vision and say, okay, God promises me riches and satisfaction, and so therefore I'm going to take those things now and in a way that isn't according to God's will. So, riches, maybe we slave over our jobs. We want to get rich. We find comfort and security in our stock portfolios, right? Maybe in satisfaction and rest, maybe we turn to things like uh, sexual immorality or pornography and instead of, instead of finding satisfaction in Jesus, we turn and say, okay, well, God has promised me satisfaction and therefore I'm going to take it right here and right now. It's not according to God's will. Jesus is the one who is supposed to make us rich, right? Right? Jesus is the supplier of the riches and satisfaction, and he supplies us with himself. And so when we become rich in Jesus, when we are satisfied in Christ, God gets the glory, obviously. Because my boast to you guys is God is that great. Christ is the only one who says, I made Jeremy rich. I alone make Jeremy satisfied. And when we walk by faith and not by sight, that's what we tell everyone. We boast in the glory of God and we say that he is worthy of us following him. That's what Abram's doing in here. He says, I'm not going to take this stuff because God is going to make me rich. You know, unfortunately, in the course of my Christian faith, I haven't trusted in God to deliver on his promises. I'm sure you guys can identify here with this, right? Instead, I thought, maybe, you know, gosh, God takes too long. I want the results now. Maybe he's not going to follow through. Maybe he isn't who he says he is. And then we end up living by sight and not by faith. And then we worship other things, thinking that they would make us rich or satisfied, giving God's glory away to idols. And in my moment of struggle and temptations, in my moment of sin, Those very things that promise riches and satisfaction, things that I give into, they mock me, don't they? And they mock this Jesus that I say I believe in, the hope of salvation that I say I cling to. They mock Christ and they boast, I have made Jeremy rich. What would happen if your idols could talk? It's a a strange thing to think of but imagine if your idols could talk at least those who are those that are inanimate i'm sure we to some degree worship animate idols but imagine if the inanimate ones could talk what would they say what would they boast i made them rich i make them satisfied what would they say about how successful they have been in getting us to trust in them other than god and then what would happen if we threw them all into the same room together a very small room where we could really hear all of their conversations and their competitions with one another. What would they say? So you have like the house idol. You know, you have like this 8,000 square foot house. Ha, ha, ha. Jeremy finds comfort in me. You see how much I'm on his mind? He's all, he has his hope wrapped up in me. You see it when one little thing breaks down and he runs to go and take care of that. And if he's stressed, he doesn't even pray. He just goes to that thing. He banks on me. And then you got like your small or very large stock portfolio idol. You know, he banks on me. Literally, he banks on me. He's consumed with me. He finds a security in me. You see how many times in one day or in one hour, he checked to see if I'm going up or if I'm going down. Even if your stock is like a penny stock. I'm always on his mind, the portfolio says. And then you got the grades and achievement. So if you're a student, you know, the grades and achievement idol, they sit there. And if I could speak in a British accent, a high and lofty one, I would. He says, that ain't nothing. I've trained him to think that future insecurity and his present worth is found in me. He comes back every semester and he has been so doing for 30 years, which is how long I've been in school. Finding significance in petty little grades, thinking that I've locked him into his future, determined it if you don't do so well or determined it if you do well and then you got the idol of lust sexual immorality they come along and she says that's child's play you should see how he loves temporary satisfaction and what i sell and i sell day and night he loves me so much he's willing to sacrifice his marriage for me and when his marriage falls apart you better believe who will be there calling him back and who he's going to return to then you've got the people idol. The people idol say, you don't have anything on us. He does what we want him to do each and every time. I control him and all of his desires, his schedule and his feelings. I am the most high God to him and he does my bidding. I tell him which house to buy, which girl to marry, which man to marry. I tell him what to live for and every single time he does it. I don't know if Satan is uh, going to hold his minions to account but imagine if he did what would your idols boast about concerning you what would they be would they be able to give a positive report to their evil god would they say i have made her rich would they say that you are seizing the so-called promises of god and things that aren't in god's will And so boasting in these things as opposed to giving God the glory. Are you concerned with getting as opposed to giving God the glory? Right, because Sodom, that's what the king of Sodom should have done because the promises were with Abram. So, or if so, our answer comes in the faith of Abram. No doubt he has flaws, just like we have flaws. That's what's really encouraging about the story of Abram. He is flawed just as we are. Um, but here he acts in faith and he says to the pagan king i don't want you to take responsibility for any of my success because god is my keeper and he keeps his promises and he in fact will deliver just as he did just now against keteleomer so he will with the promised land so friends as we look back at abram's life we are reminded that god alone delivers and that he alone gets the glory and he does so ultimately in the gospel of jesus christ So riches and rest, satisfaction, all of those things are found in Jesus. And that's not surprising because Jesus himself is the deliverer. God delivers ketel and all of his armies into Abram's hand. Jesus himself is the deliverer. And in him there is rescue, there is salvation, security, riches of joy. Who is the great one by the end of the passage, right? You have the annals of the great king, Ketelammer. But Ketelammer at the end is not the great one at the end. Abram is not the great one at the end. It is God, the possessor of heaven and earth, and who is on the scene fulfilling his promises all the time. So to conclude, let me speak to those of you who are visiting, and you may know yourself not to be Christians. This passage here calls you to align yourself with God. This great God, creator of heaven and earth, the God who delivers. I mean, imagine right now the world's greatest powers or the world's or or, or the countries right now and the the groups, the terrorist organizations, maybe, who are causing great damage and flexing their might and their power. God is over all of those things. So Daniel 2.12 said it is God who deposes kings and God who raises them up. It's God who keeps them accountable and who will judge He is the king, but not only is the king who judges, he is the king who delivers his people. And again, we see this in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you remember those promises to to Abram, how God says, I'm going to bless you and use you to be a blessing to the nations. The one who comes from Abram's line is Jesus Christ, who is the blessing to the nations God tells him later on, as we're going to see soon, that Abram's seed or Abram's offspring would be the blessing. That's Jesus, as it says in the book of Galatians. And he saves us or this ultimate blessing comes through not by delivering enemies into our hands ultimately. But it comes through salvation from sin. And so the Bible says that we all have sinned. We all desire naturally in our hearts to walk by sight and not by faith to say, I don't want to believe in God, but I'm going to believe in myself. And I'm going to take things, and I'm going to be my own idol, and I'm going to be my own God. And we earn for ourselves judgment. That's rebellion. That's treason. If God is who he says he is, who is the king, we earn for ourselves judgment in hell. But God in his grace and mercy delivers us in our own predicament. Even when we are inching towards Sodom, inching towards evil, That's what God does with Abram, right? He draws Abram out of a pagan land and out of a pagan background and says, I'm going to give you my promises. You don't have to do anything. I'm just going to give it to you. And I'm going to work deliverance through you, through Jesus Christ who comes from you. And this great deliverance comes ultimately in Christ who comes, who bears on, takes on flesh. God sends his son to die on the cross, taking the the sin and the punishment that we deserved so that everyone who says, yes, I believe in you, And I'm going to say no to myself. God says, I give you forgiveness. I count you righteous. I bring you into my family. I wipe your slate clean and forever it will be that because Jesus has worked the great work of all. He's died on the cross for sin and then he is risen from the dead. That's deliverance for sinners, right? I mean, forget Abraham's night mission. Forget that. God's plan here is awesome. Abrams, Abram's is probably cool. God's is awesome. He rends the heavens and enters into the world of darkness. His son takes on our likeness of sinful flesh and he chooses to veil his light for a little while so that sinners would be saved. That's a God who fights for us. I mean, if we think Abram is cool and faithful... Imagine the faithfulness of God. Abram might go 150 miles north to bring back Lot. But Jesus Christ traverses across the universe to grab sinners from hell who are heading in that way and who have earned for themselves judgment. And Jesus enters into darkness. Even though we all were like Lot, inching very slowly, some of us very quickly, towards evil and condemnation. People who need rescue, God saves in his faithfulness. So if God's greatness and his worthiness is a major theme for today's service and sermon, then so is your worship of this great God. So if you find yourself, you know yourself not to be a believer, repent and believe and be a kinsman of God. Jesus says that those who he saves are his brothers and he dies for them and he rises from the dead for them. Let's pray together. Our father in heaven, Lord, we do give you great praise because you are a faithful God. Not only do you simply make promises like we do, but you fulfill them. And that reflects your great faithfulness. You show here, Lord, your faithfulness towards Abram in that he walks by faith and you empower him to do so. Lord, you show your faithfulness to all of your people by sending us your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sins. Lord, you are the creator and the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed are you. And how awesome is it that you come and you bless us, even when we didn't deserve it, in our sins and in our transgressions, when we were, as your word says, dead in them. Yet, Lord, you sent Jesus Christ. So, Father, we acknowledge that we ourselves and everything we own are yours. We pray, Lord, that in our walk of faith, as we strive to live by faith and not by sight, that we will not grasp and seize after the promises, at least according to our own earthly vision, but that we would trust in your will and trust in your goodness and know for certain that we have riches and salvation and rest and comfort and forgiveness and righteousness. In Jesus Christ. Lord we do thank you for your death on the cross. And as we turn now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray that we would be reminded. Of this gospel again and again and again. In your name we pray. Amen.